Welcome to Dramatic Pause. My name is Donna Spencer, and we're here recording this podcast on the unceded territory of the Squamish First Nations, the Coast Salish people, the Squamish, the Musqueam, and the Tsleil-Waututh. I'm delighted today to be talking to David Diamond, a longtime friend of mine, who is a director, an actor, and was the longtime artistic director and founder of Theatre for Living. The shows that David created and brought to the stage include shows like Swahamit, which Home, Reclaiming Hope, Maladjusted, Corporate You, Squeegee, Us and Them, After Homelessness, Here and Now, Meth, Thirsty, Palestine, Israel, and Me, Shelter, and I think there are many more. So I've only touched on a few of them, but I'm delighted to have David here. When I first met him, David was working as an actor, and he lived across the street from me, and I have to say I cannot remember when we actually met. Do you remember that? Well, first of all, hi, Donna. <laughs> nice to see you from a distance. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're like 10 feet away yeah. uh, across the table here, folks. Geez, well, that was like on Dunbar and Second when we lived across the street from each other. The, the day we met, I, I, I don't remember. Oh, I don't need to remember the day. I just can't remember what the occasion was. You know, I, I don't think it was because we lived together. I think it was something theater. It may have been you were working on a show with Carousel. Remember doing a show with Carousel? Yeah, did, a few of them. The Miracle Worker? Did you? I did The Miracle yeah, Worker. Yeah, I think maybe that's where we met. I did um, uh, The Tempest with Carousel. And Susie Furley and I toured um, Shakespeare in the schools together. Oh, right, right. You also, I think, went to school with some of my in-laws. <laughs> yes, that's very true. <laughs> yes. Or outlaws. But yes. anyway, so we're, we, we were... We were connected before we were connected. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, so I'm, today what we're going to be talking about in these conversations, dramatic pause, obviously we are in the COVID uh, uh, lockdown, COVID-19 pandemic lockdown. And uh, the title really came to one of our staff members is that we're kind of in a dramatic pause, which we are. So we don't really know what's going to happen next, but we in the arts have a tendency to want to create all the time. So whether we're creating in our minds or creating on stage or creating um, on uh, in scripts, we're always trying to create something. So I'm going to be asking you questions around how you got into this w world of the arts. And I'm mm -hmm. curious if you remember the first thing that came to you that said to you, I need to be an artist. I need to be an actor or a writer or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, that's a serendipitous journey, actually. I, you know, I've wondered about this often because I don't remember what exactly happened, but at about 14, 13 or 14, I just started writing. It just had to happen and it took over my life. And then at about 15, I got a column, a poetry column, in the Winnipeg Tribune, the local newspaper. I, I, like, I just didn't know any better. I walked in and I said, I want a column. <laughs> and, and I walked up to the first desk I saw, and I, it's actually a lovely story because I the, the guy said, oh, who are you? And I, went, I explained, and I want a column, a poetry column, and I have my poetry here. And he opened up the envelope and he read it, read some of them, and he said, stay here. And he went and he talked to the editor, and I went and talked to the editor, and they published my poetry. 
And the guy who I walked up to, his name, I kid you not, was Bill Sans Regret. <laughs> Bill Without regret. regret. That's great. And this kind of reinforced for me that I had something to say. And so, uh, later on, I decided I was going to be a writer. And I tried to get a writing program in my high school in Winnipeg. And I went to the principal and I said, I want a writing program for grade 12. And he said, well, um, here's the catalog of courses. If you can find the course, um, we'll give it to you. And, and you can get, I think it was 20 people to sign up. And so I went and looked and there's no writing program, but there was this drama course. Oh, yes. I, I, I'd never been to see a play in my life. I didn't know anything about it, but it wasn't, uh, you know, algebra. <laughs> and so I did some research and I got a whole bunch of people who wanted to take it. I found a teacher, uh, all kinds of stuff. And I went and I went here and he looked at me and he didn't think I was going to do this. And he said, no. And we had a big fight. Uh, this Already is, an activist. Well, it was the first time I'd done this, and I remember walking out of his office and slamming the door, and the women in the office, because it was all women in the office, kind of going, you know, looking at me, and then I started sitting in on school board meetings. I was really pissed off, and I made a presentation to the school board, and I got this very nice letter, and it said, thank you very much for all this work, but no. And so then grade 11 happened. Sorry, it was a grade 11 course. Grade 11 happened, and then grade 12 came, and my English teacher, who'd become my friend by then, pulled me into her class and said, you know what happened here over the summer? I had no idea. They want to see you in the office. And I went to the office, and they had torn out the electrical shop and built a little theater and had made provision for me to take drama as a grade 12 credit, even though it was grade 11 course. And the English teacher, Zan Lockhart, was teaching it. And so I fell into the theater. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And you changed that. I wonder if that, does that secondary school, high school now still have a drama program? I haven't been there in a long time, but they did for a very, very long time. Because that's some, when some of those programs are, of course, have yeah. been cut. And they gave me, I, I wasn't around for the graduation because I went to, off to Edmonton to study theater. Right. Right. Which is another story. Because <laughs> I, mi I missed the auditions. Right. And oh, I you wrote, missed the auditions at, at, at U of A at and U of A. you had to talk your way into well, the I wrote, program? I wrote to them and said, I'm coming, expect me. <laughs> and they said, it's very nice, but you missed the auditions. And if you really want to audition, you get on a, come to Edmonton and we'll audition you on July 9, which was my 18th birthday. Oh, my. And I went and I auditioned. And did you know Tom from the Glass Menagerie? <laughs> like every other young man who auditioned, now, I now understand. And by the yeah, time I got home, lot, yeah. there was an acceptance letter, and I went off to Edmonton, and here we are. That's a great story, and indicates very clearly to me <laughs> why you are doing what you do or did and what you will be doing in the future. <laughs> yeah, sorry it was so long. No, that's good. 
So, okay, so you got into theater and you did the training program at U of A, which, U of a, which had a tremendously good theater program at yeah. that point. Yeah. And I, I don't know what it's at now, but it was a fabulous, it was the best in the country, I yeah, think. Yeah, it was. Um, and then you started to act. Yes. At, when you started to act, did you have any idea that you wanted to direct or produce no. or write? or? No. Um, you know, I was making a living as an actor. I, I got to Vancouver in... 75, 76, I think. You know, well, I graduated in Edmonton. I stayed in Edmonton. And Northern Light Theater was just starting. And Alan and Scott got in touch. They'd seen a show I did in my fourth year at the U of A. And they got in touch and said, come, we're starting a theater company. We want you to be part of the company. And so I went straight out of the U of A into Northern Light and did their first four shows. Um, and then... <laughs> You know, it's funny, I don't think about this. And then I talked my way. <laughs> I don't think about this. It's weird. I, I I couldn't get in to even audition for the Citadel. And it it pissed me off. I mean, here we were, U of A graduates, and the Citadel was the big theater in Edmonton, and and they didn't hire U of A graduates. And I and I had this long telephone argument with the woman who worked there, who, who was the gateway right. to, to John the Neville, gatekeeper, yeah. she'll remain, I, I remember her name, but she'll remain nameless. And we had a big argument over the phone because I couldn't get in to see John. And so I wrote him a, a letter marked personal and confidential and said, why is, why is there a gateway to get in? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And so he called and I got in to see him. And he was a little, he was both angry and I think impressed. <laughs> right. Well, I think that that was the time when the theater regionals across the country were still doing a lot of British or American plays. Yeah. Anyway, he cast me in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Oh, so can you do a number for that? A number from that for us now? <laughs> Probably not. But there are some pretty funny stories about it because. There were a lot of people, Brent Carver was in it, Jackson Davies was in it. It was a pretty weird and interesting cast. We, we had a pretty fun time. And, uh, but, but I decided that things were too simple because something in me wants to make my life difficult all the time. <laughs> and that it, it was just too easy. And I wanted to go somewhere where nobody knew me. And the choices were either here or Toronto. And I'd always had this idea about Vancouver and the hippies and all that stuff. And so I came to Vancouver at the end of all the hippies. I missed it. Um, but came to Vancouver and was working across Western Canada. I was making a living. So before we move on, I'm just curious, what is your favorite role from that era? What part really Gee, rocked for you from before the the uh, before headlines you, and yeah, then before you living moved started? Into headlines and and um, well, there were, it's hard to pick one. Graziano in Merchant of Venice for West Coast actors was right. pretty great. No, I'm just curious because it's it's interesting. Sometimes when I look back at the roles that I did when I was doing more acting, not that I did masses amounts, but they tended to be the ones that, that were the most provocative or yeah. politically oriented, um, which kind of shaped me. You know, Lawrence, I, I played Lawrence in Lanford Wilson's Home Free twice, once in school and once for Northern Light. Right. 
And it's a lovely little play of, about psychosis. And I was going to say, it's about something to do with... Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's a bit... It's way out there, this play. And at the end of it, Lawrence has a complete and utter nervous breakdown. And, like, he just falls apart. Hmm. And I have really strong memories of of moving into that on the stage and knowing that that little piece of you that is always aware of what's happening, you know, mm -hmm. knowing that we, I was now going to take the audience to this place where they were going to be weeping at the end and the power of that. Um, it, it, and it's a schizophrenic moment and it, it, it sits for me, it remains a very powerful actor memory. Well, it's also a very powerful story, which is actually what we all do yeah. as actors or theater makers. We're telling stories. Well, dance as well. Yeah. But it's all about storytelling. And, and uh, the best stories are the ones that resonate and stay with us. It's like, for me, the, discovering um, the ecstasy of Rita Joe and the relevance of that story that Riga wrote with Chief Dan George and Chief Dan George's wife, actually. They collaboratively kind of wrote it all, although Riga gets the, a lot of the credit, or most of the credit. Um, it was the story related to something that I knew yeah. and that I had seen. So I went, okay, this must be something that I should find out about. Because <laughs> like yourself, there wasn't a lot of drama happening or theater when I was growing up. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, the reason that Headlines Theater that turned into Theater for Living started um janet wright bless her when the canada council had made really big cuts to the arts and janet called a meeting at the arts club bar on seymour and all kinds of people came i was there and nettie wild was there who people will know now as a documentary filmmaker and we didn't know each other and, you know, Nettie and I tell this story. I was sitting on top of the cigarette machine in between the washrooms there, if you recall. Oh, yes, I remember that spot, yes. Yeah, I was sitting on top because, you know, this is something about me. I've sat on the edge always as a, as a kid. Uh, and then going into the theater, it kind of puts you on the edge. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, uh, and then coming out of the mainstream theater and creating a political theater puts you on the edge. And it's just always been part of who I am. Uh, and that's a good thing and not a good thing. You understand? Yes. Um, but there I was sitting, observing on top of the thing. And this woman was standing there. And we got to talking. And this was Nettie. And we started, people won't remember this something we called the Vancouver Artists' Alliance. I, I don't actually remember that, yeah. but I probably should. And I within, certainly know Nettie. Within and... months, we had hundreds and hundreds of members representing artists of all disciplines to different levels of government, trying to get more arts funding and a BC cultural policy and those sorts of things. And we it, it turned into a full-time job that wasn't now this is coming back that this wasn't paying back, any yeah. money <laughs> <laughs> trying to make sure artists got paid when we were getting paid <laughs> and there were we started having meetings once a month in my living room 
on Dunbar. And Susie Payne was there. John Lazarus was there. Norbert Rubsat was there. And Hungerford was there. And we were just having bitch sessions, basically, about the state of the arts. Because one of the things we were pissed off about was that we, we weren't being hired. You know, the actor's job is to sit by the phone and That's right. say yes. yes. Yeah. And, and we weren't being hired to do anything that we thought was meaningful. And after months and months and months of bitch sessions, we got tired of complaining and decided to make a play ourselves. Like, what a revolutionary idea. <laughs> and there were two things that were big at the moment. One was that the Canadian Constitution was coming down the pike. Right. 1981. 8081. And the other was that Vancouver was in the beginning of, wait for this, a housing crisis. <laughs> because the house next door... You remember these houses? Yes, these are they were huge houses. houses. Yes, gorgeous. The house next door had sold for $350,000. <laughs> it had now be $3.5 million. And we thought the world was ending. And so, you know, the housing crisis, the Constitution, what are you going to make theater about? <laughs> you know, and so we made a play about organizing for affordable housing. We didn't know we were starting a theater company. What was that called? What was that play called? It was called Bye Bye, as in oh, purchase. Right. Bye That's Bye right. Vancouver. Bye Bye Vancouver. I remember that. And yes. it was in a different place every night. And it was. It had music. Uh, a Susie Payne directed it. It was a. Uh, uh, we went out and interviewed all these people involved in the housing crisis, and then we locked ourselves in a room, and made a play, pretending we were those people, and it was this huge hit. Like, you had to really work to find it. It was a different place every night. And my telephone was the box office and my answering machine. And it got to the point where I couldn't go home because the phone wouldn't stop ringing. And all of a sudden, I was on the phone doing interviews for McLean's Magazine as a, some expert on housing. <laughs> you know, it was bizarre. And we were just going to do this project. And, and, you know, I remember like a couple of days before we opened, because we had to come up with a name for the theater. And I wanted to call it a Praxis Theater, and that didn't go down very well <laughs> with the rest of the group. And then we were starting the play, waving newspapers in the air, shouting out headlines about the housing crisis. And so Nettie said, headlines theater. And I went, <laughs> you know, but everyone, sure, sure, sure. And so headlines theater was born. I, I do remember all of that now. It's, it comes back to me, and, and, and uh, it was such, such a kind of rebellious um, take on theater, because I think I was working with Carousel Theater, the children's theater, theater for young people at that point. But I think uh, it was so groundbreaking that we were kind of all stunned that people actually took power, took their power, took agency, and did this. Yeah, you know, amazing things happened. Like, Harcourt was mayor at the time, and he took us to Ottawa to a national housing conference. And so on the way, Colin Thomas was part of this. He was in, in the play. And Colin, uh, uh, on the airplane on the way, because we were rewriting things every day based on what was happening in the news. It was kind of modular. Yes, So we yes. could take things in and out. Yeah. And so we insisted, <laughs> we, we wrote a, a play about, jo a piece about uh, Cosgrove, who was the, the federal minister of housing. And... Uh, we, and Colin l looked a bit like Osgrove, so we insisted that he do this bit. 
and knowing Cosgrove was going to be in the audience. And, you know, people loved this play, except all the ministers of housing and the politicians in the ballroom of the Chateau Laurier. Like, we arrived, all our props were in cardboard boxes and stuff, you know, and Harcourt got to be the big bad mayor from Vancouver bringing a radical theater company. It was great for him. What uh, year was that, David? Well, it would have been 81 or 82. 82, Because he he was mayor when the fire hall opened, which was in 82. And he came here to open it. You know, but but we played this, we performed this play to absolute dead silence. They hated it. (laughs) They just hated it. But it led to the guy from CMHC, I can't remember his name now, because then we wanted to make a video documentary about organizing for affordable housing. Right. And we kind of corralled CMHC into funding some of it. Now, you, because you've done another, you've done a couple of other projects about housing yeah. too, as you, as, as you transitioned into Theatre for Living. Yeah, yes. Like you've done homelessness projects. Yeah, uh, a lot of stuff here in the downtown east side. And after homelessness... The thing about that was, I can't remember the year it was now, it's like a good 10 years ago. It, the, the, the power of that piece, I think, was that the central question of it was, how do we create housing that's safe and appropriate for people when they've been homeless right. so they don't end up back in the street? Uh, it wasn't about, you know, it wasn't about saying to people, there's a homelessness issue because who needs to hear that here in Vancouver? I always wanted my work later on to ask questions we actually didn't have answers to. It wasn't agitprop anymore, like Bye Bye Vancouver. Right, right. Um, it was forum, th- interactive forum theater. And that play, like I'm, I'm very proud of this, created by people who were homeless. You know, there was one actor in the play. The others had never been on stage before in their lives, one outstanding production of the year, the Jessies. So I'm very curious how you went from uh, studying at U of A, doing mainstream theater, um, into doing agitprop theater, and then deciding to study with Augusto Boal and uh, uh, learning all the tools that he had to share, yeah. uh, and then taking it into theater for a living. And well, like a lot of things in my life, <laughs> I, I kind of didn't decide to study with Augusto. So what happened was, um, Headlines Theatre had been a collective, and I turned into the person who was the producer, uh, raising all the money. You know, when we did Under the Gun, a play on militarism, it toured all across Canada. I booked that tour. Like, I, I booked it on a telephone and a typewriter. People don't think that's possible anymore, and maybe it's not possible anymore. Uh, and and I turned into that person. And so what would happen was I was making, like you know, decisions, many of them, every day, because you have to do that. And then going to a collective once a month. And to they would permission. go, oh, nice idea, but what about... And, and it just wasn't working. I couldn't do it. And so I said to the collective, look, this isn't working... Uh, the, uh, one of two things: either the collective needs to come together and we need to share the work, or I need the power to make decisions. And what I wanted was the collective to come together. They called my bluff, and they said, "You're doing great. Take it." 
And so suddenly, like I'd never directed anything in my life. I was an actor and a writer. And so uh, I managed to convince the Canada Council to give me a, uh, a, a, an airline ticket. And I had some connections uh, in Europe already with uh, John McGrath, who was the director of 784 Theatre in Scotland. We knew each other because he'd been here and we met, thanks to Ray Michael at the City Stage. And uh, 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 Dave Johnston who, at, at Theatre Centre, a really well-respected theatre and education company in London. And so I got them to, send, to get, give invitations, and off I went to Europe. Well, to, to, to the UK. And uh, before I left, I wanted something to read. And so I walked into a store, and this book caught my eye, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire. I didn't know who Freire was. I just liked the title. But I was going to Europe because I had a question inside me. And that was, we'd been really good at doing this thing of going out and interviewing people and then locking ourselves away and making a play, pretending we were them mm. and doing it for them and at them and giving them the answer. But I, I was wondering, you know, how do you do it with them, not at them, was my question. And lo and behold, this book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, was all about that. <laughs> like, I, I, it was an accident. I or, think things happen because they're yeah, meant to. Yeah, I yeah. Mean. No, I, I, yeah. My Gitsan friends say there are no accidents, and so I'm traveling through Europe reading this book, and it's blowing my mind. And then I get to Manchester because I'm moving around, and this guy who's remained a good friend, Chris Vine, he's in New York now. He does a demonstration of this thing called Forum Theater by this guy also from Brazil, like Freire, Augusto Boal. And I'm sitting in the audience and I'm going, holy shit, that's what I'm reading about in this book. They're, they're the same thing. Boal, who'd been arrested and tortured for his theater work in Brazil, was now in France, in Paris. And he was offering a skills sharing workshop in a few weeks. And so the beauty of Europe, badung, off to Paris. And Augusto and I, hit it off and I, I know why that was it was because even by then a lot of the he, he look he was a theater guy <laughs> he was a theater guy before he became Augusto Boal right and even by then a lot of the people around him were coming from the social service area and I was already a theater artist doing political theater and we just spoke the same language we just hit it off and over the years, we became very, very, very dear friends. Now, not to be disrespectful, but can you give me uh, and those who might be listening to this blog post uh, elevator kind of uh, definition of what Forum Theatre oh, sure. is? Yeah, yeah. Um, Forum Theatre grew out of a body of work of Boal's called the Theatre of the Oppressed. And in Forum... The play builds to a crisis and it stops. It offers no solutions. It's as if the play turns around and says, you know, we have these real problems and we actually don't know how to solve them. What do we do? So you, you show the audience the play once, they can see it, and then you show it to them a second time. And that second time, the audience can yell, stop, if they understand in my work, which is different now than Boal's, 
the struggles that the characters are engaged in and have a way to come in and, and in simple terms, problem solve somehow. And so the audience member comes onto the stage, takes the place of one of the characters whose struggles they understand and tries their idea. The other actors who know what they're talking about because they're living the issues, this is essential to me, um, just stay in character and respond out of their own knowledge. And maybe the idea works, maybe it doesn't, but we learn stuff always from what comes onto the stage. And so it's a way to have a dialogue, a theatrical dialogue with the audience that is about transformational change. So when you call yourself a director, it, you, you always say on all of your pieces that it's directed and joked by. Yeah. What? The Joker in, in the Theatre of the Oppressed and in Theatre for Living is the intermediary between the audience and the play. Think wild card in a deck of cards. That character who can become and do anything is a provocateur, is a traffic cop, is all kinds of different things uh, once the audience interactive event is on. Well, and the Joker has always been the person that's allowed to say more as long as they make the person that's in power laugh. Yeah, and, and I would, you know, uh, one of my regrets as an actor is I played all of the fools, Shakespearean fools, except for Lear's fool, which I wanted to play the most. And would still like to play, if anybody wants to hire me to do that. <laughs> well, I understand you're up for hire. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> it's kind of weird, to be honest, to go back there. So what was the final point that made you decide to... Uh, retire the company and keep doing your yeah. workshops, which are so valuable. Yeah, well, you know, after 37 years, and I'm going to be really blunt about this. That's allowed. This is, a, this um, is why we're here. You know, fundraising n never got easier. Um, people loved the work that we did, but two things started to happen a, a few years previous. First, a lot of the foundations including the Canada Council, drank the social innovation Kool-Aid. Social innovation being a new term that comes out of the corporate sector to redefine community development work. Community development work, if it's going to be real, works from the ground up. Yeah, it's you about take developing one, the community. You, you take one step, and based on what's occurred, you t decide to take another step. And based on what's occurred, you take another step. In social innovation, what's wanted is two to three year arcs with predetermined outcomes. That flies in the face entirely of true and honest community development. One cancels the other out. Let's be very clear. And so I started to get into arguments. <laughs> <laughs> with foundations like the Vancouver Foundation, who'd been a big supporter of our work. And, you know, the forum theater work, because, well, let me digress for a second. You'll remember when I was doing Squeegee here, um, Squeegee was created and performed by street youth, and I hired street youth. And we... we uh, found housing for them, and there were support people everywhere. And I remember this very well when equity gave us a cease and desist order. 
Oh, right, yes. And you came to me with this fax, and you're going, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the cease and desist order was about them not being equity members. They didn't want to join equity, for God's sake. And I said to you, ignore it. Do you remember this? Well, and we weren't producing it. You, you That's were. That's right. Yeah. Why yeah. They we were, were just renting here. Yeah, why they were after us. I, yeah. It was not And I said, just ignore it. <laughs> Let them come after me. And, and nothing happened. And later on, we got an apology from Equity about this because it was outrageous. But it's an indicator of the mainstream theater community's um, feelings about this work. Let's be clear. And that was always an issue at the Canada Council. Well, and I know we've had these discussions before about how uh, people don't view the work as theater. Yeah. And so after 37 years of work, our operating grant at the Canada Council was $55,000 a year. When we were going through half a million dollars a year, you know, because part of my thing was everybody got paid above union wages, always. Like, you don't do this kind of work and exploit people. <laughs> well, and I also thought it was really important that you always hired um, professional designers, so yeah. the work was always uh, very professionally staged um, and staged with respect to all the community people that were participating. And so when the Canada Council got all this new money and people were getting like 300% increases, I applied for a, a modest increase that would solve my issues around having to fundraise every single day just to keep it going. And we were frozen again at $55,000 a year. And I, I, that sealed the coffin for me. It, and, and in some way, it was a reaction to just being so pissed off. But I kind of just went, this is unhealthy for me. It's... Um, you know, uh, I'm sure, like every other artistic director of any theater company in the country or general manager, I take having to have the money I need to produce seriously because yeah, people's groceries depend on it. Well, and it also, uh, it's unfortunate that the whole granting structure, regardless of what uh, funding body it is, when you get your grant results, have you, it, it can make you euphoric or it can totally depress you because it's a, it's seen as a judgment value on the value of your work. Yeah, you know, we were getting, uh, you know, when Shwa Ahmet toured, we toured averaging 100% houses. That meant some houses were smaller and, so, and a lot were over capacity. Our shows here at the fire hall, if, like, they were in the high 90% ranges yeah, of attendance. Always, always, almost always and full. And our audience looked like the United Nations decades ago. So do you think that that's, because uh, we're going to get into some other things about the future for the, the theater after COVID. Um, is, are, so are we still in that place where art is only for a certain segment of the community or art theater is only for certain people? Are we still in that elitist place that seemed to come... Uh, to people because our, only certain people could attend because they could afford to or had the time to? Because, I mean, it goes back historically, I think, yeah, well, for years. Uh, you know, I think it's better than it used to be. I mean, I was one of those people who used to get up, this is decades ago, and say, you know, the Canada Council should be honest because it's looking for excellence in Eurocentric art. 
not just art. And I know you've been on that on many, many, many committees like that. Yeah, I have. And <laughs> I've also been the brunt of them too. You know, and you know, I'll admit it's gotten better over the years. Yes, it has. Have have we still got a long way to go? Absolutely, we do. Because I see theater, and when I go to some theater companies, not here actually, but other places, and I look around at the audience to a very large degree, they're white and they've got gray hair. And, and that's not the case for young companies of color who are developing their own audiences. You know, people used to come to me and go, you know, I see what you're doing and I see the audience that you're playing to and I knew what they wanted. They wanted me to hire them. And, and I could hire only so many people. You know, we right. were a staff of four. And my advice to them would be, do what I did. Stop waiting. Start, yeah, cre create, start, start create a company. Create the work and start talking Create to the, the work because I know this is a bad thing to hear, but nobody's going to hire you to do the work you want to do. I'm sorry to tell you that. And that, I mean, I have to say that I think that has changed probably more in Vancouver than across the country in terms of who we are seeing on stages, yeah, large or small. It's, it's shifted you know, over the years, it has, but we still have a very long way to go. But I think the other part of it is that if you're telling stories that don't have any connection to people, what is it that intrigues them about coming or what yeah. should intrigue them about coming? Yeah, nothing. You know, I, I've, you know, part of the, the spiel I give for decades now is that artistic expression, theater, dance, uh, you know, art, used to be the way living communities expressed their dreams, their fears, etc. You know, it's only recently in the evolution of humankind that that's been commodified so that we now buy theater, we buy dance, we pay strangers to tell us stories about strangers. That's very true. Right? And so given that, the, the Canadian, I mean, to just put it really technically, the Canadian taxpayer <laughs> has a right to see their stories on the stage, not just a certain sector of taxpayer story, to put it really technically. <laughs> So do you think people go to the theater to escape their lives or to see their lives on stage? Well, I think it's a combination of both. Mm. Look, if, if I go to the theater, and this is just me, I suppose, but if I go to the theater and I might have seen a tremendously produced piece, but if it hasn't challenged me somehow about my own life or about how I see the world... If it hasn't, if I haven't cared about the characters, I've seen bad art. And I walk out of the theater often, too often, going, well, that was really interesting, but I didn't really care. So just before we go into talking a bit about what we see for the future after COVID, uh, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about your workshops and... and and, and I know you're not doing them now, and I know you're in demand around the world to do them, um, and you've changed people's lives through them. Um, what, what do you think, um, how do you think they'll impact when, when we come back? But also, have there been moments that you went, oh my God, what am I doing in this room doing this workshop? And have there been moments that you just go, oh, I can't believe how wonderful it was? Yeah, well... Um I'm often in over my head doing workshops. 
But I think that's also the power of them because I'm not there. If I get invited by a community to come in and use theater to explore issues in the community, um, I, I come in with my expertise, which, which is how to do, take people through a process. But I long ago learned not to pretend to be any kind of expert in what they're dealing with. That we, we meet in the center of a circle and we can do something together that we can't do alone. And so I'm often there going, holy crow. But I've learned that part of the challenge of life is to become un is to be comfortable in the discomfort. It's where transformation potential is. It's where creative energy is is in being off balance. You know, I used to talk about this when we did Shwa Ahmed off the stage. I just want to repeat this: if people think that the reconciliation process between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in Canada is going to be comfortable, they're sadly mistaken. It's got to be uncomfortable. Because if it's not, nothing's going to change. I think that's a wonderful statement because it's so true. And we're working through all of those things and will be for years. Yeah. And we all have to engage. And I don't know that that is actually happening. In yeah. fact, I'm sure it's not. Um, okay. Uh, COVID-19. What do you miss the most? Hmm. Well, you know, at a very personal level, I live alone. And I've enjoyed that mostly <laughs> because life was really hectic and blah, 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 all that stuff, but it's not right now. And uh, you and I are sitting a good more than six feet apart and I haven't touched another living thing in at least 10 weeks. And I'm a very, and we humans are very tactile. And my work is extremely tactile. And so the thing I miss the most is human contact, frankly. And Zoom doesn't cut it. <laughs> you know? Well, and that's something that we always say in the theater, and it's so true, that when people come to the theater and see a show, they may be sitting in a house with... Um, people that they've never seen before, but at some point, if the theater is good, they are all breathing together and yeah. exploring something or ex experiencing something that they've never, ever had before. So every performance is a unique one. And every performance uh, is reliant on actors being in a position that they can, or dancers being in a position that they can actually connect physically, but as well, emotionally as well. So I, I, I completely understand and think that that, think that a lot of the community and a lot of the people out there are feeling the very same thing, but they may not be aware of it because they may not in their lives have been encouraged to be tactile people. Mm -hmm. So when we come back from this, I mean, I found myself when I went home yesterday actually talking to my partner and backing off because I had gotten too close. And I went, oh my God, I'm doing the COVID dance here. Yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry, that wasn't intended. You know, I was saying to someone... Uh, that my my bubble has gotten bigger, you know, my personal space bubble has gotten bigger. And now, if I'm if I I live near Kitts Beach, and that if I go down to the beach for a walk 
and somebody passes too close to me, I feel it in my body in a way that I never used to. And the person I was talking to said, David, welcome to being a woman. <laughs> and yeah, and you know, there are learning opportunities in everything. Because while I'm not a woman, and I will never understand what it means to be a woman, I understood something in that moment that I've never understood before. And so, you know, there are learning opportunities everywhere, in fact. <laughs> and what's the positive? Do you think there's a positive? I mean, in your life, what have you experienced that's positive from this? Well, I've been forced to... Um, there's much more space in my life, like in everybody's life. I'm reading a lot more fiction. I'm, um, I'm connecting with people in other parts of the world over Zoom, old friends, uh, that I probably wouldn't be happening. Um, and although some of this has been difficult, like many, I think, I've been forced into self-reflection in a way that might not have happened because we are very easily distracted. And so I've been doing a lot of thinking about where my desires come from. Are the things I want coming from a wounded place? Because, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's easy. <laughs> or are they coming from a healthy place? Hmm. Uh, why do I want to be an actor again? Why do I want to go through auditioning again? Uh, you know, I, I've been to a couple film auditions now, and they've been humbling, very humbling. <laughs> I was just going to say, so that you're humbled. Um. You know, and, and, and they remind me why we started the theater company, <laughs> you know? And so, there are, and so there is a lot of self-reflection going on about things like that and trying to sort that out that might otherwise not happen because life gets busy. Life gets very busy, and I think it's uh, for, uh, what I'm finding is there's so much stuff to screen, uh, to stream or look at that I, I I don't want to be watching anything on a box anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't. I want to be there close. <laughs> uh, so, what do you think artists should take from this, and and how do you think it's going to transform, or will it transform what we do? Because in 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 reality, we may not be seeing large assembly audiences for quite some time. Yeah. Uh, and should we all just shut down and start streaming stuff, or should we try in try to do something else? Well, you know, I, I applaud the people who are trying to sort out how to make theater online, and there are layers to this. You know, we all know that well, first of all, that theater is a language that's different from film or television; they're not the same language, and that when you you know, because I've done this too, when you take a live theater production and put it on a screen, whether you're live streaming it or just recording it, it's a nice thing, but it's not the same as the live experience. It can't be, but it's a good thing. And so, and so I know companies are showing old productions so people can see something. And um, on Zoom, uh, monologues work. Um, and it's possible that shows like Vagina Monologues work with a cast because it's a very particular kind of, 
presentation where the actors are in fact in, in a weird way, little boxes. You know, they don't have to interact with each other. Um, but I've witnessed enough attempts now <laughs> at people trying to make scenes work. They don't work. And they're never going to work. Um, the online platform demands a totally different language. And we don't know what that language is yet. And I understand that we have to start from somewhere. But the kind of theater that we know how to make, where you and I are on stage together and we're looking each other mm -hmm. in the eye, and this is something important. If we're not on the same place, but we're on Zoom and we're trying to perform a scene, in order for you to think I'm looking you in the eye, I have to look at the camera. And if I'm looking at the camera, I can't see you. That's so true. Yes, and I've therefore, seen that. we can't play the scene, actually. But if we let go of the physical things of the theater and go back to what we used to do, I remember doing radio drama. Radio drama is very powerful. And we understand that what's possible on Zoom is radio drama then something opens up. So do you think, with all the wonderful, innovative things that are happening, that we're actually going to come up with a new form? Well... Theater, yeah, you film, know, whatever, I don't know what it'll be, but digital theater or something? Where does innovation come from? Artists. I'm talking biologically. Oh, from your but, instincts. Yes, well. but... Any living organism, whether it's a single cell or a complex human being, anywhere in between, the transformation, the, the, the learning, whether you've got a conscious brain or not, comes when the organism is knocked off balance, when it goes into stress. And in that attempt to regain equilibrium, the organism either goes back to the exact same place or ends up in a different place. This is evolutionary. And so the theater community as a living organism, the, the, the entire whole world, <laughs> is being knocked off balance. And there's going to be innovation that comes out of that. I have no way to predict what that's going to be. But if it's going to work on platforms like Zoom, it's going to have to be a language that we don't know yet. Right. Finding our way through it. I yeah. mean, I think that's right. I've, I've certainly seen readings done on Zoom. Some work better than others. Uh, it really depends. Um, and I think there's some work that's been done in Australia that's been quite inventive mm -hmm. um, about how things have been staged in terms of when people show up on Zoom and all that kind of stuff. But it is, an, I, I agree, I think it is a new language. I also find that we're hearing a lot from our audiences who want to be back in the live theater, in a live performance. And I'm wondering, as we move forward, given that we've all been knocked off balance, and given that we have been really reminded that we don't have a lot of control over the, our destinies, yeah. <laughs> whether the choice of the work that we do, whether how we do the work on stage will change, and, and, and whether the subject matter will change, and what our audiences will be looking for. Like someone said, well, they're, they're not going to want to come back to anything that's serious because their whole life has been serious for mm. the last six months. Yeah, you know, it, it, I, I don't, I'm not sure I agree with that. 
you know, oddly enough, you know what one of the most watched movies right now is on Netflix? Oh, it's the Contagion. Contagion. Or yeah. <laughs> like, what the hell is that about? But it, but it's a sign of something. Right. And and I think that serious, you know, it's not just musical comedy that takes people away. Very serious theater takes people away. And and I also believe profoundly that audiences. Um, appreciate the transformational ability of theater, not just as escapism, you know? Um, and so, you know, my hope is that, when, that we, when we can finally get back and rehearse stuff, that it's not all plays about the pandemic. <laughs> you know, I think it's gonna, because there's, I think there's a lot of people writing plays about the pandemic right now, I bet you. And some of that will be fine, <laughs> but as a, as a complete diet, it's not going to be okay. I certainly hope that doesn't happen, but I have to say <laughs> that we do tend to go through trends where I will receive six or seven plays about Alzheimer's, or uh, it just goes through waves in, in terms of what people are what are conscious of it yeah. at that moment. I find that in the invitations I get to work as well. Just, you know, and Subject. I think, yeah, and I think it's going to come back after this because I was getting a lot of invitations to come in and work with people on issues of belonging because people feel so alienated from each other. And I think when we come back, that's going to be a big deal because there will eventually be a vaccine. But while that vaccine will allow us back into rooms together, I think it's going to take time for people to feel comfortable after that, about coming back into rooms together. I think that's true. Uh, before we wrap this up, because we've been having such a great conversation, <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to say about anything? Yeah, well, you know, one heavier thing and maybe one lighter thing. Um, I was doing a lot of work on climate change issues before this all started. And we must not kid ourselves into thinking that's gone. The conversations around it are gone. And the fact that there's more birds right now and the air seems clean is a very nice thing. But that's not fixing climate change, folks. It is our behavior. You know, the airlines are going to come back eventually, for instance. It's our... You know, we have to deal with this at a very profound level. There are big, big things coming, regardless of the pandemic. And the other thing is, you know, just on a very self-personal, selfish level, because people are going to hear this, um, I loved being an actor. <laughs> <laughs> and I was a damn good actor. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think people think of me that way anymore. And I want to encourage people to remember. Uh, Hire David yeah, Diamond. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, just so, on one last note, and this goes back to climate change, and it's just something that uh, you actually made me think of, is that a lot of Indigenous elders actually say that this is actually the planet, the Earth, telling us, yeah. COVID is telling us that we need to realize that we have to do something 
Yes, uh, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. We, have, uh, uh, we need the planet to help the planet to heal. The planet was giving us messages for decades, and we didn't listen, and now we're being slapped around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's time to wake up and go, okay, all right. All right, so we've been sitting here talking with David Diamond on the wonderful new Firehall podcast called Dramatic Pause. Thank you so much, David, and look forward to seeing you on stage in the future. (laughs) And thank you very much. Dramatic Pause is recorded at the Firehall Arts Centre in downtown Eastside, Vancouver. It is presented by our artistic producer, Donna Spencer, and produced by technical director, Alastair Wallace. The Firehall Arts Centre has been producing and presenting Canadian theatre and dance since 1982, and we couldn't do this without the help of our generous sponsors, benefactors, and patrons. We'd like to thank the Canada Council for the Arts, Canadian Heritage, BC Arts Council, BC Gaming Commission, and the City of Vancouver, as well as our season sponsors, The Georgia Strait and East Van Graphics, and especially our many generous individual donors. If you'd like to support Canadian theatre and artists by becoming a donor, you can visit our website, www.firehallartcentre.ca. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those held by the Firehall Arts Centre, its employees, or its supporting bodies. 